Uh, well, you can have a seat. And good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Anderson College, uh, and I would just love to welcome you here to Grace. Uh, if you are new here, we are especially glad that you've joined us, and we would love to talk with you at the end of the service. We'll have a table set up in the back of the room uh, where we can give you more information about what we offer here as a ministry, as a church. Uh, we would love to hand you a gift at that table. We would love to have a conversation about how we can help you find our, your home here at Grace. Uh, and if you have any questions or concerns throughout the week, you can always text us, uh, send us a message at this number. Uh, it's very simple, very easy. I think sometimes people don't believe me when I say it's a number that works. Last week when I kind of talked about it, I was like, hey, you can send us a text. Someone literally just during the service, I think it was during the 11, was just like, hey. We were like, you up? What's up? You know, what you, what's, what's going on? Uh, and that's, it's real, I promise. Uh, last service, just this morning, someone just sent their favorite gif of a guy turning into an airplane. And I love it, right? So send us anything you want. But we would love to hear from you. We'd love to have a conversation if that's your goal. And I would encourage you that if you're looking to get connected here at Grace, your best opportunity to learn more about who we are, about how God has designed you, and what we can do together is at a thing called Growth Track. You go one time, we offer it at the the first of every month, and it is simply an opportunity to learn more about how we function as a church and how you can be a part of that, how you can find community and how you can find a way to serve. So we would love to see you. Our next growth track is in two weeks at the 11 a.m. service, right across the sidewalk in the gym. I mean, we would love to see you there and connect with you and have that conversation uh, about how you can be more involved here at Grace. Uh, we are wrapping up this morning a series that we've been moving through for four weeks, right, where we've been examining the truth that God has designed people as multifaceted beings, that we have a side of us, we're physical, we're emotional, we're spiritual. And in all of those facets, there's all these different layers, all these different realities, all these different details about who we are and how God has designed us. And one of those specific layers that we've been looking at is our sexuality. We've been examining, man, who are we? Uh, how have we been designed by God sexually? Right? And so we want to understand God's design. We also want to understand the distortions that have come through our world and through sin. And then we ultimately, every single week, are wanting to see, well, how has Christ redeemed this? Right? How does Jesus Christ speak into? How does he change this aspect of who we are? So we've been doing this over the last four weeks, and it's been a huge topic. And we've had a lot of conversations uh, during services, after services. You guys have been emailing us and texting us, and I, I love it. And I want to still hear from you. Uh, but I would encourage you that if you have not been with us all of these four weeks, if you... You know, if this is your church home, uh, but you just, you weren't here, uh, man, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to some of those messages. We have our uh, podcast through iTunes and on our website, and I would encourage you just so that you have a better understanding of where we are as a church, where we are as a community, I would encourage you to go back on your next long drive, your next workout, whatever it might be, man, listen to, to, to what we've been walking through as a community uh, because I would love for us all to be, you know, essentially on the same page. And so as you do that, I would also encourage you to be immersing yourself in God's word. Uh, we already know uh, over a thousand, I mean, between this room and Southwood, we've got about 1,300 people that have, that have already been using our, our Devo, and that's really great. I would encourage you, if you have not, uh, we, we started this, we launched it at the start of our series. If you go through the YouVersion Bible app and you look up reading plans, you can look up Grace College or look up sex or something like that. And we have uh, a plan that essentially walks you through the scripture that we've been covering on Sundays 
and then some, that kind of walks you through uh, just a better understanding of how God has designed us to, to function, how God has designed sex to basically play into our lives. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. And again, you can always email me. Reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns. Uh, just a, a piece of family business, just so you know. Uh, my wife is super de duper pregnant right now, and she is going to give birth to our third child, our, our new son, Liam, uh, very soon. And so it could be this week, could be next week. Uh, but because of that, uh, we are going to be, or I'm going to be gone. Like if when he is born, I will have responsibilities to step into. Uh, it's just part of being a dad. I have to go, you know, kill a wolf and bring it tied in and all that, wrap it up and, you know, all that yeah, dad stuff. And so uh, I would tell you, though, that you can still reach out. You can still email me. I might be slow to respond, but I would love to still. My inbox is always open. And we have some really amazing guests lined up to speak over the next two weeks before spring break. Uh, I would encourage you to come to listen listen to them, hear what God has put on their hearts. Uh, it's, it's going to be really powerful. And so, uh, can, but, but in other words, you know, we want to keep the conversation going. We want to keep talking. And so to that end, we actually have an event coming up uh, that our staff member, Sid, who's super duper awesome, is going to tell us a little bit more about the details uh, of this thing that we're calling Real Talk. I love the yeah, title. I really talk. do. I really do. Okay. So this is actually just for the women in the room. Um, and you can tune out, tune out for a quick second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're good. You're good. But uh, so ladies, we want to get real about sex, porn, um, same-sex attraction, and hookup culture. We don't want to sugarcoat it. We really want to have conversations about what's really going on in our culture today. Um, and so this coming Thursday from 6 to 8 at our Southwood campus, we have an event called Real Talk. And it's going to be an amazing night where we have really good community, great fellowship. We're going to have a panelist, uh, excuse me, a panel of four amazing women who have walked through these particular struggles. They're going to be sharing their testimonies, their victories, um, and uh, just how they've walked through these individual different struggles. Um, they want to answer your questions. And so, ladies, we have a bit.ly. It is bit.ly dash let's get real. It's on our Instagram. Um, we have flyers that you can get as you're walking out the door that have the information on it. Um, it's anonymous, so send in your questions. We won't know who sent them. We won't know, um, like, we won't know your name or anything like that. And you'll be able to, we'll be able to answer those on Thursday. And if you have a Bible study that meets on Thursday, we would love for y'all to, like, jump in with community together. If you're a co-ed, tell the guys, hey, sorry, go do whatever y'all do. And then, um, ladies, you can come to the event. So, yeah, we are so excited to continue this conversation with y'all and can't wait to see you there. Uh, yeah, guys, do whatever you do. I Last, I was disappointed. Last service, Sid was just like, go watch basketball. And we were all like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I don't like it, but I will. Because uh, she made a compelling case for it. Uh, but yeah, we, we would love to continue these conversations even beyond Sundays because we recognize, hey, this is a big topic and, and it brings a lot of questions, it brings a lot of concerns, it could even bring up a lot of past hurt. And, and even as we step into this series, we, we want to kind of wrap things up on a really positive note. We want to wrap things up essentially recognizing that, you know, God designed sex and despite the distortions of sin, sex can still hold incredible power and purpose in our lives. But in his word, God gives us instruction and, and he lays out a particular context, right? A specific place for sex. And if we leave, it, if we use it in that context, what it does is it produces the greatest benefit. It's the best place because it's God's place. And we need to recognize that, I mean, context is everything. 
It's everything. Uh, for sex, for, for other aspects of life, even for specifically uh, professional basketball uh, commentary. basketball i'll watch this all day uh because what happens is when you take something out of its proper place everything's different right when you take something out of its place what happens is it can lose its power and it loses and it misses its purpose right that's that's the truth that's that's just life that placement can change everything that the placement the context can change the power and the purpose of a thing of a person of an item of a behavior of whatever it might be i mean you can you can take chicken and combine it with waffles and holy guacamole you got a good something's happening you've been to mess you need to go to mess this dope all right but that is a great thing but you take chicken and you take another breakfast item you're like hey lucky charms it's not going to work right I know there's like three sophomores that are like, maybe. Nick won't. Don't do it. Not worth it. It won't. Right? Context, placement, man, it changes everything. I can give my wife a really sweet card. I gave her this really sweet card on Valentine's. It was like from our kids. It was pictures of our kids. And they wrote little, I had them write little notes. It was so sweet. And I gave her that card on Valentine's. It was really great. If I try to give my wife a really sweet card in the middle of, you know, labor, that's not going to go so great, right? Like, that's not going to be the best play. I, will, I would try to handle it. Like, look what Charlotte drew. He's like, stop. What are you doing, right? What have you done? I have no children. Like, that's, that would not be a good place for that item that otherwise is good, right? Context is crucial. And God has designed sex to function in the same way. God has designed our sexuality to, to be best in a particular context. And so this morning, as we wrap up this series, man... I want us to understand God's direction for our desires. And I want us to understand that we can find a place for sex that God has created. And in that place, there's incredible power that God has given to to sex. And there's a purpose that it can accomplish in our lives. And God's laid all this out in his scripture. He's laid all this out uh, in his word. And if we are asking ourselves, okay, well, what is the place, right? What's God's designed context for sex? Uh, well, it's, it's marriage. 
It's in the committed covenant of marriage. We see this throughout Scripture, uh, specifically, we're, especially in Hebrews 13, where it tells us that marriage must be honored among all, and the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. He's telling us, look, the, the author is writing to just a group of believers, and he's at this closing, kind of closing his letter, and he's giving just sort of these little tidbits of advice. And this is one of them. He says, you've got to remember that marriage is valuable. Man, see it as valuable. Honor it. He says, and at the same time, see that sex is designed as a part of marriage. Keep that bed sacred, undefiled. And we really don't have a problem with that first part of the command. We actually, and when I say we, I mean literally this room. Uh, you guys have shown us that you absolutely value marriage. That you, you think it's something very worthwhile. At the start of this series, a lot of you gave us really incredibly helpful and honest and completely anonymous feedback through a survey where you kind of told us a lot about where you land on different topics related to sexuality. And one of the things that we discovered was that we asked you, hey, well, do you ever want to get married? And oh, man, oh, man, do you. Uh, We had about 96% of you were like, yes. Like 3% were like, maybe. And then like, like four people were like, no. And that's fine, right? And that's, that's actually, this is about the national average the, of college grads. If you guys are graduating from Texas A&M or, you know, Lord willing, uh, if that happens, you have about a 95% chance of actually getting married. And so, uh, and the reality is it probably is in your 20s, which is, lines up with a lot of your desires. Some of you, <laughs> I love it, are like, yeah, now. <laughs> and let me just say, Maybe today's the day. I don't, you know, I know guys, I know girls. Let's talk, right? Like we can, we can make this happen. We'll make a bit.ly and you can just <laughs> sign up. God's in control. Like we, we can trust that that's going to happen. You guys love the idea of marriage and you want it, you're aiming for it. It's on your horizon. I mean, I love that. I love that marriage is so, so good. It's hard, but it's so, so good. And it's, it's a gift that God has given us. And yet it's a gift that we see and that we don't want to just kind of leave in its place. It's a gift that we actually kind of want to grab a hold of and we want to dismantle it. And we want to take little bits and pieces and we want to tweak pieces and we, and we take things off. And, and one of the little elements that we kind of want to disassemble and then, and then use for now is, is sex, right? God has said, hey, sex is meant for this place. But we say, no, 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 I want, I want, to, I want to take that off. I want, to, I want to use that now. And we found this because we asked you guys, we said, hey, what's the minimum level of commitment that you would need with someone before you'd consider having sex with them, before you'd consider sexual activity? And what's so interesting, okay, what I learned, and y'all's feedback was so helpful in directing so many of these weeks, so many of these talks, so much of where we spent our time and, and the, the issues that we tackled. But man, I'll tell you, this is one of the most dramatic changes is when I saw this When I saw this play out, I realized that, you know, I, I don't think chase after sex simply because we're, we're seeking pleasure. I, I don't think it's just a lack of self-control. I think a lot of times that's, that's the approach. That's, that's the assumption that's made by old fogies like me in churches or out of churches or as researchers or whatever, we think, you know, oh, they just, they're just looking for, you know, a quick fix. Or they're looking, they just don't have self-control. Kids. Oh, my gosh, my mic is cutting in and out. Uh, but I think what I realized through this 
is that it's less about chasing after pleasure. It's more than that. I think you're, it's, it's chasing after the right person. I think we desire to find the right person more than the right context. Right? That's why the biggest jump out of you know, almost half of you guys that say, you know, I, I, it's okay before marriage as long as some other requirement is met. There's the, the biggest jump, more than engagement, more than, more than exclusively dating. The fact that 24%, about a fourth of the room, said that if we're in love with each other, we're ready. If we're in love with each other, man, that's it. Like, the, check the box. Let's move forward. The fact that that was the overwhelming response tells me that it's, it's, it's a focus on the individual. It's not a focus on the context. But see, here's what's so crucial. is that God's word, yeah, recognizes that you want to find the right person. You don't want to be unequally yoked. You don't want to be with a person that has different you know, spiritual desires, that has a different life trajectory. But, but ultimately, what Scripture is going to tell us is that, man, even more so, you've got to be looking for the right context. It's more than just the person. It's also the place in which you find yourselves. It's the context in which your commitment uh, is happening, right? So it's the context of your relationship. The, what God's word is going to tell us is that, man, context is crucial. And this is something that we see even outside of God's word. In 2012, a researcher by the name of Sharon Sassler, working through Cornell University, she did a study where she surveyed over 600 couples that were either cohabitating or married. And she was looking at long-term effects of sexual activity early in relationships. And so what she did is she asked them a number of questions about their relationships, their satisfaction, fulfillment, all these kinds of things. And she had about a third of those couples, so about 200 of the 600, had, uh, engaged, had, had started having sex with each other within the first month of their relationship. And what she found was that, and I quote, rapid sexual involvement may have actual adverse long-term implications for relationship quality. What she found was that by and large, the people that were, they'd been together, you know, longer than a month at this point, they were either were living together or they were married. She found that what they were experiencing by and large was a lower sense of satisfaction. The earlier that they started having sex, right, the, the, the quicker they launched into that activity, the less satisfied and fulfilled and less, less positive or healthy of a relationship they had later on. And this was especially true for women. One of her key takeaways was she says, man, uh, for a woman and a married, the married women, they, had the, they took the hardest hit. It's not just God's word that says this because God thinks it's funny to say it. God's word is telling us this because it's true. Because we're finding even in psychology, even just secular studies, man, there is something to be said about allowing sex to remain in marriage, to, to, to reserve it for that later point in time. God's word is telling us, man, that the context is crucial. And so, yeah, the, the best way to find that right person, right? You, you feel like maybe it's, I, I feel like I'm in love, therefore I'm with the one. God's word says, no, no, no. You want to find the one? It says you want to find your soulmate? It says what you do is you look across the aisle on your wedding day. And now that person who you make this vow with, this person that you commit your life to, this person that you establish a covenant with in front of God and in front of witnesses, it says that's the one. You have now chosen your soulmate. This is that person. You look across the aisle. They're right there. That's how you find the one. It's not a feeling. Man, it's a conscious, critical decision that you make together. That says, yeah, we're going to do this. 
We're going to be, we're going to stick it out. We're going to walk alongside of one another through thick and thin, through health and sickness, till death do us part. God says that's, that's where sexuality flourishes, in the security of a covenant, in the security of this commitment that is so much different. It's so much beyond our current relationships. I mean, your relationships right now, whether you're dating or engaged, can basically just end in a phone call. Right? You can end that thing in an afternoon. Marriage is completely different. Marriage is another level of commitment. You're, you're binding yourselves legally. You're binding yourselves in front of the Lord. You're binding yourselves in this covenant. And it's in that security of commitment that our sexuality really flourishes. And we really see the full power of it play out in our lives, the full benefit that we can experience. And so as we look at sex in this place, I mean, what kind of power comes through? Well, I think one of the best, but, or really the, the primary book in Scripture that speaks to sex and the benefits of it is the Song of Songs. Sometimes we call it the Song of Solomon. But literally, the title in Hebrew is just the Song of Songs. And it's written as this essentially kind of a collection of, of stories and, and perspectives about, a rela- about romance. About a man and a woman. About a husband and a wife. About the, the, the rise and the fall. The, the, the joys and the sorrows of a relationship and of a marriage. And sexuality is, is covered a lot in this book. It gets sketchy, man. It's, it's nuts. And so we will read in Song of Songs, we, we read passages like this in chapter 4, where the husband is speaking to the wife. They've just been married. He says, you're beautiful, my darling. You're beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil, they're like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. And there's a little bit lost, right, culturally uh, for us. I don't know the last time you sent this in a snap, but like that's, that's just him trying to describe the beauty of his beloved. And then what's happening is actually in chapter four, he begins at the top of her head and he works his way down. He's just describing her splendor. And, and I love that, that people read this and like, you know what? His imagery is so bonkers. If we drew it out, literally, we wind up with, with, mat, with nightmare fuel <laughs> like this. Seeing that, you know, as there's goats, like your teeth are like these sheep and your lips are a thread and your temples are pomegranate. Like, ah, oh man, it's bonkers. And we wind up with this romantic description that is terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Just allow that to haunt you forever. But what's he getting at? What's he accomplishing? Man, what he's trying to say is he's, he's bringing romance, right? Sex should be romantic. And so he's describing the beauty of his beloved. He's, he's, he's talking about how much he desires her and wants to be with her and appreciates her. Why? Because he's being romantic. Right? He's tugging at the heartstrings. First and foremost, the power of sex. I mean, it has the power to be romantic. It also has the power of gentleness. When he's describing her and using these weird images, one of the things he says is, he says, your breasts are like two fawns. Right? So these baby gazelles. It's a weird description. But what he's getting at is he's saying, man, you're, you're something to be cherished. Right? I want to approach you with gentleness and with care. Right? Sex should be gentle. It should be something that communicates that you're safe, that you're secure, that you're special. You're something to be loved and, and cherished in a gentle way. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't say, like, you were like a lion that I hunted and trapped with a net. Like, he doesn't say, it's not like, I've conquered you. Yeah, Kraken or whatever. You know, like he doesn't say, like, we use these weird monster imagery. He says, no, it's, it's, you're like a baby deer. 
He describes her like a dove. He, he talks about her in these gentle ways. Because sex should be something that's cherished, something that's gentle. It's also something that should be affirming. He wraps it all up in saying, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you. In other words, he's looking at her and he is just overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly affirming. Right? In, in marriage, in, in a sexual relationship, man, there's no room for negativity with your spouse's body. Ever, 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 ever. Because is this 100% true? Like, did she probably have a blemish here and there? Like, did she, like, scuff up her knee or, like, lose an arm to a lion attack or something? I, I mean, life was crazy back then. And so there was probably, there were probably bumps and bruises or little things that she didn't like about herself. Or, you know, she'd walk out of the old-timey bathroom and be like, my cheeks are too thin or whatever. That, he, he doesn't play into that, though. He's saying, no, you're, you're all together. You're perfect perfect. That's why we fight so hard against things like pornography, because it just fuels comparison. It fuels these false imagery, images. It fuels these false, false expectations. And it, it destroys your view of your spouse. Sex should be something that is affirming. It should be something uh, that is sensual. As he's moving again towards the end of this chapter, he starts to describe her. He says, you've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. When he says sister, it's like a term of endearment. It's weird, but don't use that one. But he says, you've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with the jewel of your neck. He says, it's it's visual, right? Like I see you and I desire you. He says, "Your, your love is delightful. He says, it's better than wine. He says, the fragrance of your perfume is better than any spice, right? So it's not just visually, he's bringing up wines, like it's a taste. He says, it's a, it's a smell, it's a fragrance. He says, your lips, they drip sweetness like the honeycomb. My bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments, it's like the fragrance of Lebanon. He's using these incredible sensual terminologies, using these sensual illustrations saying, look, you, you've captured me wholeheartedly, holistically. He says, man, there's every aspect of me is, is I'm, I'm just attracted to you in all these different ways. I desire you in all these different ways with all these different senses. And this is beautiful. Sex should be something that is sensual. It has the power to, to encompass all that we are. One biblical scholar put it like this. So I just want you to, just, I want you to hear this quote. <laughs> picturing just a really old man like writing on parchment he says this he says no other activity takes you out of time and occupies every sense he says no other activity allows you to take your deepest emotions and put them into action it's beautiful it's the sensual act it's the sens- sensual aspect of who we are. Sex is a beautiful thing. And when you bring all of these pieces together, right, the romance and the, the senses and the, uh, the positivity and the gentleness, I mean, when it all comes into play, what happens is the wife responds at the very end of the chapter. Right? He's been saying all these things, lavishing all these praises. She responds with a line in verse 16. She says, Awake, north wind. Come, south wind. Blow on my garden so that its fragrant spices may send out their sweet smell. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its delightful fruit. Over and over again, they talk about sex like a garden. This beautiful little encapsulated space that's cared for, that's cultivated. Right? Gardens don't just happen. It's planned out. It's thoughtful. She says, let's go to that garden and let's, you know, 
And that's how she responds, right? It's this beautiful way of, she's like, yeah, let's go. Like, like we are both excited for this because we're talking, right? They're communicating openly. They're connecting with one another, right? He brings the romance and she responds. It, it goes both ways. Sex should be something that's responsive, that, that brings unity and cohesion to a relationship. Sex. That's a really weird way to start off. I'm just stalling right now, hoping she's in the mood for some horizontal hustle. And I'm just waiting for him to make the first move so we can do the mattress mambo. I love her. And I love him. I'm just not always sure she's ready to do some dancing in the sheets when I am. I've been shut down before. It's kind of embarrassing. Me too. Eventually, it leads us to stop trying as often. Well, you're in luck because there's Love Sync. Love Sync is a device that lets you know when both of you are in the mood for some hippity-dippity. It's super simple. All you have to do is place a button at each of your bedsides, and when you're feeling a little randy, you just anonymously push the button. There's no risk of rejection. If only one of you pushes the button, nothing happens, and your partner's none the wiser. Welcome to Everyone's Nightmare. <laughs> that is 2019, where we have buttons, where you can anonymously... <laughs> Tell your partner that you want to have sex. There is nothing anonymous about that button, right? Hopefully. Uh, but there's nothing anonymous. That's about as anonymous as putting your name in the goblet of fire, right? Like, they're going to find out. Harry, you know, that's, it's going to go down. This is the worst thing I've ever seen related to sex in a marriage, because it is just, you know, the goal is responsiveness, right? The goal is communication. You want more communication. You don't want more buttons and anonymous blinking Alexa lights on your bedside. That's not the goal. Scripture tells us, no, you want to be responsive, right? You want to be talking with each other. Why? Because there is a purpose behind sex, There is a goal that it is actually accomplishing. It's more than just the right placement. It's more than just recognizing the power that it holds. But it's actually moving you in a direction. It has a purpose. And that purpose is unity. The purpose of sex is to unite two people into one. This is what we see repeated in Scripture. This is the reality. This is the truth that we see played out in Scripture, in society, and in science. Over and over and over again, we're seeing there is unity created through sex. In Scripture, we see it like this. Right after this couple has sex, right? So the curtains kind of close at the end of chapter 4. And then they open again in Song of Songs chapter 5. And they've had sex. And suddenly, the language is shifting. Suddenly, the husband is looking at the bride. And he's talking. He says, I've entered my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my balsam spice. I've eaten my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk. And he's using all this possessive language. Where originally, he's like, oh, your honey and your milk and all these, you know, your wine and da-da-da. Now he's like, no, 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 it's mine now. It's mine, my honey. Get back. Winnie the Pooh. You know, like, he's like, this is what it, this is mine. Mine, 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 mine. Why? Because he's illustrating, and she uses the exact same language later in this chapter. They're both using this possessive language because they recognize, you know what? We now belong with one another. We are now one. We own each other, in a sense. Right? Not to dominate one another, but not to control one another or manipulate one another, but we own one another in this beautiful unity 
And it's something that we recognize even in society. Society recognizes that unity is created through sex. That's why sex is the goal of like every famous romance. Any like story, any movie, any story, I mean, they all are moving people towards sex. And it's not, you know, we're not watching movies. We're not watching, you know, the beloved couple of the notebook. We're not watching them be like birds together and hang off of chandelier, not chandeliers, carnival rides, Ferris wheels. And we are watching them do these things and laying down in streets like crazy people. But we, we see them do this. And we want them to have sex. There's, a, there's like something in the back of our minds, this whole movie, where we're like, oh, man, they should totally have sex. And they do. And we're like, oh, yes. And it's not because we want them to like have a pleasurable experience. I'm just like, I just think they really enjoy it. Like, that's not, that's not the goal. It's because we know like there's something different about the relationship. Like, they're going to be more to get, like, their relationship is more real. I think that's what we see. That's what we recognize. We recognize it in romantic movies. We recognize it even like stuff like Lion King, you know? Circle of life, right? Like when, when there's love in the air tonight, like we know what's happening. Like, you know what the goal is. They have a baby by the end. Of it. We're like, yes, yeah, Simba, Nala. Let's bring on Lion King 1.5. You know, like we're ready. We're ready for those sequels because, man, we, we know, yeah, we want these people or lions to be together. And it's because we recognize that there's unity created through sex. It's why, you know, even culturally, we still see a very big difference between waking up next to a stranger and waking up next to your spouse. It's a big difference there. Why? Because we recognize, man, there's, there's a unity created through sex. And it's, it's something that's physiological. Charlie Hall, the licensed counselor, talked to us a few weeks ago. You know, he brought so much wisdom. And he and I had talked a lot, even beyond pornography. And we talked about how science, it, it's created... Your brain is wired to affirm sex, right? For men and women, you have dopamine, right? It's the, it's the big kind of uh, chemical reward in your brain for taking risk. And one of the biggest transmitters for that is having sex. And then beyond that, for women in particular, oxytocin is this big powerhouse chemical that gets released in your brain in four different instances. You get oxytocin just surging through your brain. Whenever you have, uh, like, with sensual touch, uh, when you engage in sex, uh, when you begin labor with a baby, and when you nurse your infant. That's why it's called the bonding chemical. It's this bonding agent in, the, in especially the female brain uh, that is designed to bond you with your most beloved people, with your newborn child, and with your lover. And for men, they have another chemical called vasopressin. And they call it, literally, the, the nickname in, in scientific communities and research communities is it's the monogamy molecule. Because what it does is it wires the, the male brain to, it strengthens the synapses, it strengthens the pathways to having sex with that person, with that partner. And it weakens the decision-making processes or the ability to choose to not have sex with that partner. And so what's incredible, we found through science, through studying the mind and the way that God designed it, is that couples always feel this bond. Couples that engage in sexual behavior, they always feel this bond regardless of how short-term that relationship is. You create that bond every single time. Unity is found through sex. This is what Jesus gets at when people ask him about marriage and divorce in Mark chapter 10. He quotes Genesis 2. 
He says, well, it's this reason a man will leave his father and mother, the two become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is saying, look, it is unnatural for you to want to divorce your spouse. It's unnatural. It's the product of sin for you to want to divide a marriage, a covenant before God where two people have become one. Now, he makes allowance for it. Right? There's biblical grounds for you know, allowing divorce to take place in, in the cases of abuse or adultery or abandonment. But, but Jesus is saying, recognize that it's still a product of sin. He says it's still not something good. It's not God's best. God's original design is that we would f- be with that person, we would bond with that person, that we would be united until death do us part. And sex is a major component of that. Right? God made us out of plurality, right? The, the plurality nature, the, the plural nature of God, the, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the fact that he's multifaceted, three persons in one, this multifaceted aspect of him is, is found in his creation of humanity. And the fact that he made Adam, and then he realized that Adam needed a companion, and so he put him to sleep, he takes out a part of the man, and he brings Eve, he creates her out of the, the bone, he brings her to Adam, and he says, oh my goodness, at last, this one is bone in my bones, flesh in my flesh. She's going to be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so this is why a man leaves his father and his mother, unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife, they were both naked, and yet they were not ashamed. They had with each other this perfect relationship where they were open and vulnerable, fully known and fully loved. No fear, no shame, no guilt, no hesitation, no division. Naked, unashamed. But it was broken. As soon as they chose to step out of the will of God, as soon as they decided that they knew better than God, sin came into this world. And they covered themselves with leaves. And the relationship with God was broken. The relationship with each other was fractured. And so ultimately, you know, what we want, our deepest desire, is to return to that original relationship. I think that's why we look so much more for the person than the right context. It's because there's something in us that longs to be fully known and fully loved. We're looking for it. We want to find that person. We want to find that companion. And that's a good desire. Right? It's a good to want to return to this relationship, to, to be reconciled. Right? That's what reconciliation is, to return to original relationship. But the problem is that we can't have that because of sin. That our relationships will always be fractured. And so what we need is actually for someone not just to reconcile us, but also to redeem us. We need to be bought out of. That's, redemption is buying someone, is bringing someone out of, saving someone out of a terrible situation. So yeah, we desire reconciliation, but what we need is redemption. And this is why Jesus Christ came. We have a desire to be reconciled with one another, a desire that can, we, can, we can actually see play out through sex. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful aspect, a beautiful behavior that God has given us, a gift that he's given us to find that reconciliation, to be two brought back into one, restored to our original relationship with one another. But God has also told us, man, what you need is Jesus Christ. 
And he didn't come, he didn't step out of heaven and onto earth to live the life that you could not live and die the death that you deserved and rise again three days later to prove his power over sin and over death. He didn't do all those things to somehow just take us to this new level of reality, this new level of existence. Jesus Christ came and he did these things so that he would take us back to our original relationship with God. He came so that we could move backwards to be reconciled, to have our relationship restored. Right? That's why we can hold on to this high view of, of sexuality. If we hold to this high view, what we're doing is we're reflecting the gospel. We're recognizing that Jesus Christ came and changed everything. That he came to meet our greatest need and enable us to find our greatest desire. That he came for us not to move us forward, but to take us back to that original relationship with God. And I'll tell you, if you're like me, you can look back at your life and you can look back at your experiences. You look back at your sexuality and you have regret. And you have guilt. And you have shame. Because you made mistakes. And I'm there with you. And for others of us, we look back and we see not just the guilt and, the, and the, the, the mistake, but we also see more shame that was added on to us. We see Christians, we see a church, we see people who just shook their fists at us or looked down at us because of the mistakes that we had made. And others of us, we look back and we see ourselves being those people, shaking our fists, looking down making comments behind their back. But you need to hear me. You need to hear me when I tell you that we have no right to shake our fists at people who are broken in ways that we're not. No ground to stand on. We are in no position to, to look down upon, to, to condemn people who are caught in mistakes that we've just hidden, that we've just done a better job of sweeping under a rug. Why? Because we worship a God who loves to restore what was broken. We worship a God who looked at us in the midst of death and he brings life. We worship a God who loves to offer forgiveness in the midst of rebellion, we worship a God who looked down at us and does not bring any condemnation for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, regardless of the mistakes, regardless of those sins, regardless of that guilt. He says, man, I'm going to wipe those things away. He says, because ultimately you're found in the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, and you have this new identity and you're a new creation. And so when you are, are, are held up with your sin, he says, I'm going to just push that sin away as far as the east is from the west. He says, I'm not counting that against you. Why? Because Jesus Christ already paid the penalty. He already paid our debt. He made a way when we had no way to redeem us out of sin and death, to reconcile us with the God who made us. And so now when we walk forward as his representatives, as we walk forward as his children, we have an opportunity to not just see people as a bunch of messy behaviors, but we see people who have a need to be redeemed, to be reconciled by believing in Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through this world, we're going to continue to fail to live up to God's standards in lots of ways, including in the ways that we use our sexuality. We're going to continue to fail to use sexuality according to God's design. But here's the beauty. Our God, he loves to restore what's broken. He loves us too much to leave us alone. And Jesus Christ was broken 
for our sin. His blood was spilled for our sake. And we can find life in his death. And so we don't judge. We don't condemn. We don't walk around trying to correct everyone's path. We see people's need for belief in Jesus Christ. And if we have a brother or a sister in Christ who's caught in a sin, we approach them with gentleness and love. And we point them towards truth and then we commit to walk next to them in pursuit of what God has made available. The fuller life, the more satisfying life that's found in following Jesus Christ. And this incredible gift of Jesus Christ, this is, this is why this morning, man, where we really wanted to land was in taking communion. This morning what we're going to do is as we end our time of worship, we're going to actually observe the Lord's Supper, which is a, an ordinance that the church has been given thousands of years ago. It's laid out in Scripture as this opportunity not to receive a new uh, blessing from the Lord, not to, not to achieve some next level of Christianity or to be saved, but it's an opportunity to simply remember what Christ has accomplished. It's an opportunity to recognize what God has done on our behalf. And so I would encourage you, man, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, I would encourage you to use this time to take this opportunity to talk with God. Or maybe with the friend that brought you, with maybe with a, a leader who's going to be in the back of the room. And, and we would love to talk with you, man, about what does it look like for you to walk in this life? What would it look like for you to really believe and trust that your brokenness doesn't own you, that death is not your end, that Jesus Christ made a better way. And if you're a believer, I would encourage you to use this time to come and, and, and during these songs, as you feel led, to, to take the bread, to take the cup, to, to remember what Christ has done. Following the, the encouragement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he describes communion in this way. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, in, in, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And this is what's key. This is what Paul says. He says that for every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, what you're doing is you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming the goodness of the redemption and the reconciliation that we can find in Jesus Christ. So as we enter into this time, let's start by praying to God and thanking him for what he's done. Lord God, you are the, the father who loves us more than we could ever know. God, you, you're, the, you're the God who, who pursued us even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were running the opposite direction. And God, there's some of us here right now that, that have been running in that direction, who have been living in this denial of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And, and yet right now, your spirit is bringing us to conviction. Your spirit is calling us to yourself. And so if you would, man, I, I, would, I would love, I would appreciate is, you know, if, as our heads are still down and our eyes are still closed, I mean, if you would be willing, 
if you're seeing that, that Jesus is now the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, that you want to trust, that you want to believe, if you're seeing that, man, I would, I would love if you would raise your hand so that those of us on staff can just see where you are so that we can be praying for you. So that we can pray for you in this moment and moving forward. Awesome. Y'all can put your hands down. And you can pray with me. Not that this is a mystical, perfect prayer, but this is simply a reflection of where your heart is right now. God, we see that we are broken beyond our own ability to repair. That God, that we have mistakes that deserve condemnation, that deserve judgment. And yet God, you have spared us from that because Jesus Christ took that hit. Because he paid that debt. So God, we believe that he came to save us, that God, that he brings forgiveness for us. God, we want to trust in that. God, we want to walk in that freedom. And man, if that was you, if you were the ones that raised your hand that, that just prayed that with me, I, I want to encourage you that you've, you've stepped out of death and into life. And I would encourage you to talk with someone about this change. For the rest of us that have maybe believed this for some time, and take this moment and thank God. Thank him for who he is, for what he's done, for how his grace plays out in your life. Just spend a moment in gratitude as we enter into this time. So pray those things right now.